Hello, hello. Welcome back, dear BungaCast sub- 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 subscribers. Uh, welcome. Um, we're happy to see you again. Um, we're here to do another Alpha Bonus Bonus, um, where we have a sort of general chat and also, importantly, respond to your questions and comments uh, that you have made over on Patreon over the past couple of months. So um, this is the first one we do since last year. I think the last one kind of covered period up till November. So um, we've got a good couple of uh, things to kind of crack on with. Um, various themes to just, uh, I guess, foreshadow them a little bit. Um, we have a little bit about Brexit, of course. We couldn't we couldn't let that lie. Uh, um, we have uh, film, art, the plenty on the millennial left, um, and our uh, kind of... Um, Doomly times, I, I, I say as, as kind of the clouds darken outside. Um, I don't want to lay it on too thick. But uh, anyway, as I, as I have um, said elsewhere, kind of 2024, kind of giving us 1914 vibes. Um, and we discussed elsewhere uh, on a Reading Club um, at the end of last year, which was, I think it was in the second part on Giovanni Arrighi's uh, Adam Smith in Beijing, where we discussed... Um, the Belle Epoque, right? So this period which preceded the Second World War, or excuse me, the First World War, um, ending the liberal world order. What? You're, it's their numbers. You can get them mixed up, Phil. It's not like I didn't know the history. It's not like, I, you know. Um, anyway, um, so um, in that, we discussed how things in the 2000s, for example, 90s, 2000s, 2010s even, perhaps, but certainly the 90s and 2000s, might have been similar to the period preceding 2013. Oh, fuck me. Jesus Christ. I just can't do numbers. <laughs> slap yourself. Slap yourself. Look, or look. get Dre to do it. <laughs> oh, no. You can actually hear that in the mic. Yeah, um, yeah look, they're numbers. Anyway. People get numbers confused. One, two, yeah, three. Anyway. I, I just, yeah. Right. World um, Wars. How many have we had? Who knows? The 90s and 2000s. Might have been similar to the period preceding 1913 um, and the period preceding that. And so Phil just has a piece in Unheard. Hi, Phil. How's it going? Hi. Good. And uh, and, and George doesn't have a piece, um, but he's trying to grow one. Uh, I I'm, I'm may <laughs> one day have um, an Unheard article. Pe- I thought you were going to say a penis there. No. I mean, I think all of my articles are heard. So mm. maybe, but with, a, with an A in. So. I was just trying to trick, trick. Can you trick people into a Freudian slip? Well, that's what I was trying to do. Anyway, um, but uh, Phil's piece is about Lenin, um, as as he is wont to write about, um, and how his period and the period preceding the Great War compares to ours. So I, mean, I guess just to start off with, I mean, are you getting these kind of? I don't want to lay it on too thick and to suggest that we're on the precipice of a world war. I don't think it's quite that, but there are kind of. 1914 vibes or maybe like early 1910s vibes in terms of um, the ratcheting up of international tensions and indeed 
um, to ongoing wars, particularly which we would want to highlight in terms of Ukraine and Israel and Palestine, um, and the latter particularly seeming to have, you know, the the potential um, for for becoming a wider regional war um, and the risks of that. So you guys just vibe check here. Yeah, I mean the so the piece that um, you mentioned it was written on the hundredth anniversary of Lenin's death, um, and so it wanted to. I mean, the reason the Belle Epoque was raised was um, to draw attention both to similarities and differences between the two periods. So you know, it was a period of um, of peak, early peak globalization um, and liberal world order of a very different kind and obviously um, different in terms of um, its politics. And the most significant difference that I put down was the fact that there was no serious serious organized um, working class movement that was in a position to challenge for power at the level of um, and also maintain consistency with its own demands for um, stopping a drift towards war. So as um, the Second International did um, at their major congresses in the run-up to the First World War, but then um, notoriously failed to abide by them. So, I mean, on the, you know, on the 19 kind of where we sit, it's, um, again, it's kind of the comparative, the similarities and the differences are kind of equally in, instructive. So again, we're kind of exiting a period of, um liberal globalization in economic terms and an era which very similar to the era of the Belle Epoque has been dominated by um, tremendous kind of polarization of wealth, um, tremendous economic advances and wealth creation, a period of relatively open borders in terms of um, economic migration and also um, globalization kind of culturally and politically, not just economically, is seen in some of the, well, seen in many kind of facets of um, society. And we've talked about it plenty, you know, I mean, not just in the Reading Club on Origi, but also in many different uh, um, facets. I mean, if you recall, um, you know, we talked even about kind of global cities as a phenomenon of that era, the corporate class headquarters springing up in mm. um, overpriced urban centers in all different parts of the world as a result of the era of low interest rates and investors piling into property as a response to to that, to the finance of that era. So, you know, there's plenty of similarities. Um, I suppose, I mean, you know, and at the same time, recently, there's been this seems to be this kind of coordinated push throughout the Western world to try and um, get citizens thinking in terms of their um, military, their willingness to participate in the new security demands um, potentially coming out of a Trump administration that will put pressure on other Western states to up their defense budgets. Um and as well, I think it's more generally um, governments kind of seeking to find ways to manipulate their to manipulate their um, citizens. So you know, there's been a big brouhaha in the UK over um, the possibility of conscription. But really, I mean, you know, it's completely unreal as yeah, a prospect. It was, kind of laughed, it was kind of laughed out, right? It was laughed out. Of yeah, court. even by the Tory government. So it was a, a senior general kind of who was on the brink of stepping down, said we might have to consider conscription or a citizen army. And it was coincided with a poll 
um, published by um, my former colleague from the University of Kent, Matt Goodwin, who indicate, you know, it indicated that something like, I think, 30% of people between the age of 20 and 40 would um, not only refuse to fight for Britain in case of a third world war, but actually refuse to fight if Britain was under threat of imminent invasion, you know, which is um, wow. an even more remote prospect than a world war. You know, I mean, the Russians can barely occupy the Russian-speaking part of eastern Ukraine, let alone kind of um, sweep across the continent and threaten, you know, threaten us yeah. from across the channel. Why assume, why assume it would be the Russians? It's, it's the French. They've long harbored designs on, <laughs> on this country. So, I mean, it, it would depend yeah, I how just the, think, all the Germans, you know, I think it's well, I think it's because um, I think it's mainly because Macron is such a liberal weenie that I don't think he really poses a threat in terms of um, in terms of the military threat that he poses to Britain. Plenty I mean, of you, you, uh, threats to the liberties and rights of um, the citizens of France, of course. Anyway, the point I is, mean, right, that um, there is kind of a clear effort to um, screw up tension. But I think the, you know, the big kind of the chat about conscription indicates how far we are from the world of 1914 with the you know notorious kind of um, pictures of crowds thronging plazas the kitchener poster the imp- for the imperial war effort in the uk you know we're very far from that and i don't think they're realistically trying to remobilize i think what they're doing it's very much kind of information warfare it's um kind of manipulating expectations at the edges it's um kind of what it really is i think is trying to make clear that we're going to expect to pay more in terms of taxes and we have to get um, for a defense budget and also accept the fact that there will be, um, that the deep state is essentially trying to re-legitimate itself in the aftermath of um, lockdown and the pandemic. And I think plenty, you know, they think, I imagine plenty of them think that um, another war would be something along the lines of lockdown, you know, and I'm not, I'm by no means the first to say this, um, but I think, you know, there is, they have a kind of a template for um, an emergency in, in, in period regard? that doesn't, sorry? Yeah. And in, in, in what regard? I mean, what, what does that look like that people well, are stuck at, made to stay at home or? Not if made uh, to stay at home exactly, but I mean that they have, I mean, we probably would be right, but that the, you know, that the, there is a kind of a, a, a flexible service economy that can function and telecommuting and so on means that you could um, keep state society and economy functioning without requiring a vast kind of effort at social mobilization. So whereas the kind of the Mm. default, the default mode of um, the operation of the imperialist state in the run-up to the first world war was popular. You know, I mean, that was the point of the Kitchener poster, um, and everybody, you know, the equivalents in France and Germany and Russia, um, whereas that kind of default response doesn't exist. So it's kind of uh, it's gaslighting, essentially. I think all the kind of um, talk about conscription and trying to get it's not as if they genuinely want, um, the, yeah. you know, they couldn't risk the kind of political um, the kind no, of political change that would be needed to get people ramped up to that level of um, popular intensity to um to uh, be willing to actually um fight a world war on that scale no i think that's a that is a, a very good point just right at the end the the risks of the mobilization that would be required to to have a rerun of the pals battalions for example in world war one which was all these you know young 
often very young guys going and kind of um you know <clears throat> enlisting together and often dying together as well like that we're so far from that <laughs> from that situation now that to to kind of you know to give give young guys guns you know we've all seen full metal jacket and that go to those kind of training um facilities like that's an absolutely like that's a big risk like why not just demobilize keep the population demobilized and and you know well, as you were it, saying phil you have drones or delivery kind of bring in some people some food and you know the the war is 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 far off so i mean it's funny that um one of the, i mean it's not funny at all actually but you know in terms of men with guns, young men with guns. Um, someone recently referred to some kind of crazy shooter going up and, you know, you know killing a bunch of people and then, and then shooting himself, something like that. Um, referred to it as you know, the lone wolf years of lead. That these are, this is the age that we're coming into, to use another historical reference, you know. So this is like, the, it's like the, the politicized violence of, of Italy in the 70s, except that it's just individuals being nihilistic. Um, and you know, and that sort of violence you can you can imagine increasing. But I mean, that's, I'm going out on a tangent. I think what's no, that's, interesting that's interesting because it's, it's it's kind of from bowling alone to posting alone to shooting alone, going post, not, going postal going alone, postal to, alone. To, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, not that's to be facetious about it, yeah, but, but yeah. Um, yeah, there is something about that complete atomization and, and nihilism. Sorry, although, but you were although gonna... you although you'd say you know that the kind of turn of the century was characterized uh, by in part by anarchist bombings, which themselves were. I mean, I don't know how you would you could do a comparison of between that and sort of Islamist terror and and kind of far right nationalist terror and whatever. Yeah, it's um, been today, done, but... but I mean, you know, it's again, it's a very telling comparison. There were, I mean, it's in Victor Serge's memoirs of a revolutionary because that was the kind of um, the crowd he began with um, were the were anarchist bank robbers and terrorists who were casual about the civilian casualties or the non um, you know that kind of occurred during their various raids and shootouts and so on. But it's um, you know it's nothing on the scale of kind of deliberately targeting um, crowded places with the sole aim of um, killing as many people as possible. Yeah. And the anarchists, you know, despite for all their limitations, I mean. Um, it was the era of kind of targeted, a very kind of um, targeted political killings, which was the majority, the bulk of anarchist violence was targeted against, um, or kind of anarchist adjacent violence was targeted against um, politicians, um, American presidents, um, you know, Italian kings, um, Russian czars, as well as their various kind of ministers. So it was again kind of a contrast and to that extent and i think it is worth stressing you know in some ways the belle epoque was um a genuinely more civilized era than the equivalent of the late 20th early 21st century era not least in the fact that even the terrorists tended to be more civilized in terms of the way in which they um sought to wreak their um kind of nihilistic violence i suppose um but anyway the main i mean the the main purpose oh, I mean, of the yeah retrospective on on lenin was um less to praise him than to bury him um which is to say that the you know we're kind of dealing with the failure of um and this is the main point of the piece is that we're dealing with the failure to overthrow that era of um capitalist of authoritarian 
um, capitalist geopolitics that arises out of um, the decay of uh, periods of liberal globalization. And we're still stuck within that cycle, within that repetitive cycle. And Lenin's was, um, you know, the last kind of um, serious, heroic and ultimately doomed effort to break out of that um, and its failure. And we're dealing, you know, we're dealing with the historic legacy of that failure um, to break out of it. Um, and so that's the, you know, that's the real point of the piece is that um, there's no way to really understand Lenin's politics without the fact, understanding the fact that he's, his, he and his followers were the most serious, they embodied the most serious political effort to um, reverse uh, the Great War for which um, everybody else was culpable. Um, and so that is, and so, you know, Lenin was um, for the kind of reputation that he still has as being this kind of um, sectarian fanatic um, who ruthlessly um, kind of fragmented um, the socialist movement of the day. His politics was the one that was consistent with the promises of the pre-war socialist movement as a whole, um, which they yeah. said would prevent the breakout of a war by all means necessary, including force, general mm. strikes, and revolutionary seizures, seizures of power if necessary, and they failed to do so. Um, whereas Lenin was consistent with that politics, yeah. um, as was shown in pulling out of the, pulling Russia, revolutionary Russia out of the war. Um, yeah. And that in, helped to end the Great War itself because it undercut the German justification for the war and thereby helped to precipitate the revolution um, which led to the um, armistice on Germany's side. Yeah, nice. No, I think on the point about burying Lenin, not praising him, this, of course, still needs to be done in the very like physical sense, right? Because you've, you've got Lenin's embalmed body <laughs> still like uh, yeah. above ground. So, you know, if you can, if there's any Russian listeners who are inspired by Phil's uh, piece and they dig a hole and throw, throw, um, throw him in, uh, do that us know. But anyway, so that, I mean, th these yeah. historical analogies do um, suggest themselves, you know, and they, and they seem enticing as a way of guiding an understanding of what's going on now. But, you know, we do live and we've emphasized this before in very historically unique times. Um, no time has ever lived after mass politics. Um, only ours has and kind of in the shadow of mass politics where but still in a very modern hyper modern situation um, where you know with fully developed capitalism indeed with no opponent to capitalism also historically unique so um, you know I, I obviously the comparisons to 1920s and 30s are always wrong because they're they're very deeply wrong I think there's rather little that's instructive about that period um, for us but the pre-1914 period does have its elements as phil said earlier you know as much um about that period it's similar to ours as much as is radically different um though I, I, one thing i just wanted to highlight you know talking about conscription and you know the enthusiasm for war the kind of um view that millet and, and role that militarism had in western societies at the time versus ours um that things changed rather quickly then because of course that was an era before not before mass politics but before mass democracy largely and certainly before total war really was a thing that was known to people and so that held you know going to war suddenly running off to war um we were talking i think george and i with when in the episode of jj charlesworth a little bit about i don't know if this made it into the episode or not but about michael mann's the magic mountain and where the character at the end just like run he's like there being ill on a, in like in a swiss 
posh sanatorium and then suddenly runs off to join the war and it's like completely at odds with this character yeah sorry yeah sorry um but um and and, you know i think that kind of captures somehow how things could change quite quickly because we also don't know you know western publics don't know um war don't know total war and so there's a i I don't mean to say i don't want to be suggesting that um you know, watch out because suddenly we might end up in a total world war. But um, you know, we should be aware of of, of that things can change rather quickly. Um, and I think cha- yeah, things are changing kind of subterraneanly. It's actually Thomas Mann, not Michael Mann. Michael Mann is an American. <laughs> yeah. Well, an American either the sociologist. Either no. Well, I was thinking the sociologist. I wasn't thinking of it, obviously. But there's a sociologist as well, the historical sociologist, who'd been a little bit more accurate. Than, it's the same guy, um, the sociologist and the filmmaker <laughs> and the film director. He just likes explosions too. He was like writing about all this kind of d- deep, slow historical sociology and whatever. And he's like, yeah, but also, can we blow shit up? Anyway, um, it might be. I mean, so one. I think one final thought is useful though, because in that you know part of the point of imperialist. Um, politics by its nature it's a mass form of politics i mean its whole kind of rationale is to deflect um the pressures for democratization and enfranchisement and popular enthusiasm is to deflect it into outward and into rivalries with um competitors abroad so i mean i think you know that given the absence i think what we could have in you know that kind of pressure forces sharp and decisive confrontations as you get indeed with the world war and in the absence of that pressure i think you know we might get increasing violence and tension um but without the ever the need for a decisive kind of confrontation that would actually resolve or transform um political orders and so and i think this is perhaps captured in um what people are talking about it's perhaps a touch overstated, but not by much when people say it's not a world war, but rather a world at war. Mm. So you have lots of these conflicts which never quite intersect and are kind of, um, you know, packaged together the way in which um, you did have, in fact, in the world wars by the system of geopolitical rivalry and alliances, which necessitated those, um, you know, those conflicts becoming intertwined. But that itself was a result of the underlying political pressure, which was came from uh, mass politics and, um, you know, kind of the capitalist states going through the throes of early um, industrialization. So, yeah, we're we're missing that. So I think it's kind of we, you know, we could be in a period which is in fact already a world at war, um, but without the um, any move towards a decisive confrontation. So you have more of a more of a um, a drift, I suppose, and no yeah. actual resolution. Now, interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to go too much further. Maybe if listeners want to hear more about this, maybe do a dedicated episode because there's other questions we could throw in there um, about the role of the masses in stopping war, in starting war or urging on war um, or intensifying war um, and how the absence of mass politics and indeed our desire for the return of mass politics would play out in that. So um, plenty to discuss. Maybe that just put a pin in that think about it and, and if you're interested in more or want to suggest something listener uh please do we're always um all ears as well as mouths uh, <laughs> anyway so on to your questions i'm going to just um 
uh, I think listener just just introduce the uh, you know the question and answer section of this where we deal with your questions and comments. Um, you should be keeping track, and I hope and I'm glad that listener Michael is keeping track of the number of times that Phil says thrusting in each episode. So um, should uh, keep an eye out on that. Uh, just not let that um, tension kind of burst burst beyond its. Uh, own trousers or whatever. Anyway, um, that was a comment from <laughs> the last alpha bonus bonus number three seven six. Um, Jacob Cart um, says, you know, decent responses. I don't necessarily agree with, um, but it's clear where you guys stand, which seems like the point. Indeed, it is. Um, hopefully, this kind of uh, question answer thing can help kind of clarify a bit. He also says. In response to the fact that that episode was our very first one on video, I think. Uh, more video, please. It makes you guys harder to hate for some reason. Excellent. Um, I'm glad our faces make us more likable. Um, but uh, critically, Jacob adds that I think Phil, Phil has a politician's habit of answering a question he'd like to answer rather than addressing the actual premise of the question. Um, so we're going gonna, gonna to keep him to... There's another, there's another question that I wanted to respond to, actually, which is there, so... Okay, um, we'll we'll get to that then. Um, just just a couple of clarifications. I think these are kind of more addressed to, to me or in, or in general about um, Israel and Palestine, which is that uh, Richard R says it was a bit disappointing to hear Alex say that Palestinians have no economic value. There are always capitalist expansion opportunities in the shadow of any liquidation of a population. It's a bonanza for construction firms, etc. Um, and then uh, Igor Kaliha says. By which definition does apartheid require exploitation of labor? And just to clarify, the, the point that I made, I think, in that episode, um, which I appreciate was a, was a long while back, but as the issue is still very much present, it's worth restating, which is more just about pal the exploitation of Palestinian labor, um, where they are kind of um, tr they are kind of a surplus population with regard to Israeli capitalism, um, and therefore can be treated dispensably. This is a kind of wider problem of, of, of surplus populations today um, and the Palestinians kind of capture that but unfortunately I think a lot of this discussion goes missed so um, but I didn't mean to say that they the Palestinians have no economic value um, it was more from the perspective of employing them as laborers but anyway um, which which they which they are by, by by Israel but I mean I think it's the the point that the mass of Palestinians are yeah would, though, would be seen it's as worth disposable. saying I think, I mean, if there are kind of opportunities for um, capitalist growth in Gaza after this conflict is over, um, they're more likely to be snaffled up, I imagine, by Qatari and Saudi firms under some mm. kind of peace deal more than Israeli ones. I think the Israelis will keep out, um, you know, they'll retain kind of rights over the um, rights of military intervention and control, obviously, as well as surveillance and whatnot. But I don't think they'll be looking to economically integrate um, the population of Gaza in the aftermath of the conflict. And, you know, they haven't been looking to do that for um, a very long time, which was the whole point of separating out the population with the wall. Um, and I'm not sure, I mean, you know, it's not about, I don't think it's a necessary component, economic exploitation, I don't think need be a necessary component of apartheid, because apartheid just means, I mean, I mean, it's most minimal meaning, it just means separateness. Um, but when the model of South African apartheid is used in order to denounce um, Israeli policies in Palestine, the West Bank and Gaza, it um, is transplanting something which looks very different because, you know, as we discussed in our original episode with Alex Gorovich, South African capitalism was absolutely dependent on exploitation 
hyper exploitation of uh, the black majority in South Africa, whereas Israeli capitalism has been tooled in such a way precisely to avoid dependence on Palestinians um, as much as possible, at least, you know, uh, importing um, importing uh, Russian Jews in the aftermath of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union, um, but also like, you know, um, labor from abroad, um, you know, yeah, um, from across notoriously, the I mean, you know, there were Filipino and Nepali workers who were killed and kidnapped by Hamas in the um, raids of um, 7th of October. And the fact that they had, you know, people working from outside of Israel rather than relying on Palestinians who were in Gaza right next door indicates the extent to which Israeli capitalism is unplugged from um, from the Palestinians in those territories. Yeah, well put. So um, moving on, um, I have said before that I don't like talking about lockdown just because I don't like revisiting it. Um, we did an episode recently. Um, I, I wasn't involved in that one by chance. Uh, episode 377, Lockdown Country, about Australia um, and its lockdown. Um, we did that with uh, Shahar Hameri and Tom Choder. And um, one of our listeners, Surface Envy, says that they appreciate the way we're not allowing lockdown to be memory hold. Indeed, uh, we will have more on this. Yeah, you may be delighted or disappointed to hear. Um, it, we're looking to have Christian Parenti on mm-hmm. um, about this in 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 uh, short order. Um, so we are gonna we are gonna be talking about it. I think just because it is probably traumatic in the sense that you know, in, insofar as trauma is often imagined as a wound which kind of heals over, but not heals over entirely and, and continues to present problems. Um, I think the the lockdowns are are rather similar. Um, and so we so have to Alex, maybe pick open that new skin, which is all yeah. nice. And, and look, that skin's all nice and, and fresh and smooth. We're going to fucking dig into it and, and open it up and, and open up that wound again. It, I mean, it, from your presentation, it sounded a bit like you're one of the the people trying to memory hold this. You know, you, oh, you yeah. don't want to talk about it. You don't you weren't involved in this episode. So maybe you're um, part of the problem. Not oh, no, the, I, that, uh, that was my entirely my solution. intention to suggest that I am part of the problem. Um, yeah. I can't even watch, you know, when there's like clips of football from like 2020 and 2021 and there's like an empty stadium. I refuse to watch those clips, even if they're good ones, where it's something I want to see. What, like, like, like Liverpool winning the league? I mean, like Liverpool winning the league. Yeah. It just, it, but it, it sends a deep cringe, a deep, like not cringe is even the right word, but a shudder mm. down my spine to see these empty stadia. Anyway. Um, but one, just one, one thing that I would say is there's another definition of trauma, which is something that you, you can't talk about and simultaneously have to talk about. So maybe mm. maybe that fits in this context. Nice, nice. Um, one other point about this, because we called it, and there was reference to the lucky country, a little pun there, lockdown, lock, lucky, um, where you know there's this idea that um, Australia is lucky because it had resources and a good climate and and you know just favorable international conditions etc and that, that's a sense in which it's a lucky country but vico 1725 um argues that that's a misinterpretation of what the australian intellectual donald horn wrote um it's not only being fortunate in living conditions um but also of australia being a derivative or imitative culture incapable of generating ideas or strategies on its own to meet local conditions and problems instead it simply adopts ideas or strategies from elsewhere, applying them and then ignoring them when they don't work and patting ourselves on the back when they do. That is to say, being lucky. I think that's interesting. Um, I'm also intrigued by that idea because it is suggested of of other um, kind of arrangements or um, patterns of development and, and intellectual life in other peripheral countries. I mean, I know this in Brazil where it's been discussed. I mean, the great literary um, theorist, 
um, uh, Roberto Schwartz argues about Brazil that, you know, in, in an essay called Ideas Out of Place, that, that Brazil kind of imports these ideas which have no have, have and it's a pattern of its development um that its elites import these ideas from abroad trying to be european and then it, they don't really fit and so they sit awkwardly like this kind of superstructure which doesn't really match the the base of society um and and sometimes they fit and sometimes they don't or sometimes they're used instrumentally to kind of perpetuate uh their rule but don't really don't really fit and I, and and there's an there's a a question about you know kind of peripheries and the lack of their own intellectual production and in, in ways of um, understanding themselves and um, their own societies and so it's interesting that even Australia which went on to become a um, well already that time was a, was a rich country um, and continued to be so that it should also confront that uh, situation of being kind of derivative um, anyway I found that intriguing yeah just um, a couple of points on this so the the listener so it's V I C O 1725 and like you i thought initially this would be vico right but then i thought no if this is an australian it would be vico right so we don't know you have to let us know vico or vico how how we should pronounce your name but yeah i mean this was i think it was a good episode the you know this is the idea how the how the lucky country became the locked up country and that's that's the the name of tom and shah's book the yeah i mean the the original kind of I guess it's about Australian self mythologizing and, you know, how this kind of got turned on its head essentially over the period of, of lockdown. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an already Donald Horn is kind of heavily ironizing when he's using this and Shahar and Tom taking on this, this phrase, there's additional levels of like what, what this actually means. But I think it's a really good kind of inversion of like, you know, just because the, the, the book and hopefully the, the interview that we have with them as well just shows the i guess just how badly wrong this 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 went for for australians there's no way looking cross nationally you could think that they were they were lucky really um mm. to be locked up and as tom said i can't remember the number of days it was like 400 and something that he was in melbourne um under lockdown restrictions of various sorts and that's uh not not particularly lucky sounding to me i think you'll find it's a jam batista vico uh, who was an Italian uh, Enlightenment philosopher in the okay. in the 18th century, uh, 1720s? Right, I, I suspect that's what the reference is to, but, but who knows? You'll have to tell us, Vaco. That I can't. That's that's the last wow. Australian accent I try to do on this. <laughs> Fucking hell. Okay, um, th- episode 379, um, in which um, we enticed you into listening to yet another episode about Brexit instead of. Uh, giving you pictures of Taylor Swift. Um, not AI-altered pictures of Taylor Swift. We're honest, at least in that regard. Um, no, this was actually about uh, Phil and George and, and co-author's uh, wonderful book on Brexit. Um, Eamon notes, uh, though, and, and there's some kind of glum notes here or, or angry people um, coming up with their receipts and saying, hey, I paid for Brexit. This is the shit that I get. Um, so let me let me tell you what these uh, listeners are saying. So Eamon notes that uh, quote unquote the ten- uh, quote <laughs> the tendency to defer, deflect, consult, and abdicate political responsibility has gotten worse. Exactly what Brexit was supposed to end. So now uh, what's happening? Uh, the end quote. Now instead, um, what is happening is that uh, instead of putting it all on on the EU, it's done with regard to NATO or the Bank of England or the UK Supreme Court, Sage, international law, consultants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is indeed heightened by um, how much the Tories don't want to govern. 
So there's still that continual deflection um, after Brexit, which has actually increased after Brexit rather than um, Brexit putting an end to it. Similarly, Justin O'Connor compares Brexit to, um, quote, unquote, a Bismarckian revolution from above that delivered no new Reich or class lines, just nothing. I appreciate your support for the potential represented by Brexit, but really, this is so naive. Um, he goes on to dismiss uh, Phil's idea that Britain, as, as Phil claimed, uh, that Britain is ahead of the world in moving on from neoliberalism. Um, so I'll let you guys uh, do oh, one more action. Let me throw this in so you can do them all together. Uh, Kenneth Smith says, uh, Phil sounds so blinkered and idealistic about Brexit and its achievements, using language he would absolutely scoff at if it was about any other country's political decisions. I'm uh, remembering how dismissive he was of Chile's new constitution and the movement around it when it failed to be enacted. Terminal UK brain diagnosis, I'm afraid. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, let me um, let me give a first cut, I guess, at some responses. I suppose uh, the th the points that Eamon raises about the um, tend the uh, tendency to kind of defer and de deflect continues. But I think it's um, it seems to me positive. The things that he lists as negative seem to me to be positive because it's precisely the fact that they're no longer disguised by a constitutional settlement and stable status quo, which the European Union provided. Um, and at the same time, that it helps us to identify blockages to the exercise of popular will in a way that was far less easy before because you hadn't had a demonstration of popular will as you had with the with the plebiscite and the subsequent general elections. So when the Bank of England is blamed for the way in which it's mismanaging the economy, it seems to me entirely accurate and um, uh, democratically healthy to identify a technocratically appointed body as responsible for mismanaging the UK economy or indeed the UK Supreme Court. Um, because of its um, the way in which it interprets um, human rights law, um, or indeed international law, the fact that um, uh, the UK is still bound by the European Convention on Human but wouldn't, Rights, wouldn't, which wouldn't that apply? Wouldn't, wouldn't that apply to the EU? So when people when politicians blame the EU for whatever, it also is pointing out an undemocratic aspect in in, in UK polity. So I mean, no, but they didn't. The they wasn't. It was said our hand, our our hands are bound. And it was a way, even in critically, um, even when it was critically deflected, it was, you know, the bad European Union um, is binding our hands. And this was, you know, the Tory politician, William Hague, did this frequently. Um, but then he became, once it was actually on the line, he became a very staunch proponent of staying in the EU. So the fact the Tories, I mean, it seems to me what's happening in terms of the long-term consequences seem to me to be very... Um, you know, um, beneficial in terms of uh, the long-term democratic boost to um, British politics. And the fact that the Tories don't want to govern, I think, is the telling, the fact that it's so clear and so exposed, and that the Tory party that did get Brexit done is on its knees electorally. Um, the fact that the Red Wall achieved political independence from the Labour Party and from the Tory Party, these seem to me to be positive. Even, you know, it's turbulent, it's disruptive, but I don't, it was never going to be any other way. And those all seem to me to be positive achievements. Um, I've, you know, I don't think uh, myself or George, I mean, well, George can speak for himself, he's here, but the co-authors on the book, we've seen we see the um, period stemming from Brexit. We see Brexit not as like a tick box list of achievements, um, which you then kind of move on from. That was very much the, um, 
you know, that was the way in which Boris Johnson wanted us to view Brexit, get Brexit done. But we see it as inaugurating a new political period, which is obviously complex and has many kind of um, um, steps forward and steps backward. But the overall um, tendency of travel seems to me to be um, positive, even if it involves all sorts of um, unexpected conflict. And I have to take issue with... um, Justin O'Connor, because I don't think it, I mean, there was no comparison to a Bismarckian revolution um, because there was no Bismarck and there was no revolution. Um, And there was, it wasn't a process of national unification, but a process of seceding from, seceding from a larger um, collective political structure. So it seems to me um, characterizing it as, um, it's naive to characterize it as, um, as something as akin to a kind of 19th century nation building process because it really wasn't. Um, so when I say that Britain and when I say that Britain is moving ahead from neoliberalism, I, I mean, I wonder if, you know, this is uh, liable to misinterpretation because I think there are many on the left who here moving on from neoliberalism and misunderstand it as moving on from capitalism. And there's I I I give the, the the listener the benefit of the doubt. I don't think they're suggesting that. Well, no, and I I am giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm I, I it's a tendency that I see in these debates. So I want to clarify that when you know that there is an important difference. So when I, and so to be to give the listener the benefit of the doubt and to be as precise as I as I possibly can be when I say moving on from neoliberalism. I think the tendency is you can see it throughout the world, right? Now, the question is, how is it done? And it's terms in terms of the way in which economic policies are slowly being um, revamped, right? And the way in which um, corporations and capitalists and bankers and bosses and employers, how they see their relationship um, with states and um, with governments, all of that is being slowly kind of transformed. So when I say it's uh, moving on from neoliberalism, what I mean is moving on from the political structures of neoliberalism, as well as from its economic policies. We're more advanced in moving on from neoliberalism because we had um, a much more decisive democratic break with the political structures of neoliberalism than any other state. Um, And I think that's evident in the kind of problems that Germany is going through now, the kind of problems that you're seeing in France, um, as well as the continuing, um, you know, kind of uh, right wing national populist unrest. And the fact that the US is, you know, kind of rehashing 2016 and um, 2020 with a Biden with a Biden Trump rematch. So, I mean, those sound, you know, those sound kind of like political epiphenomena and, and the real, you know, in terms of policy, not political. In, the, in the, in the, in the, well, it rehab, it's a political epiphenomena. Well, an, an electoral content contestation like that. I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily the, you know, the meat of the issue. Um, in terms of and policy, it's not, it's in, terms of pol- minor, in terms of policy, it's not a minor thing. At no, all. no, but but in terms of policy, in terms of something which is demonstrable and not just possible or full of potential because the old order is corroding, but something that's actually. There, there's actually, you know, there's relatively still, still remarkably little moving on from neoliberalism. Um, but nevertheless, you know, um, the United States okay, under Biden, look, it, is, the policies, look, the policies were, is, were went much further in that regard than anything that Britain has done. Which policies? Yeah, in in, in terms of uh, the the kind of state led investment in, um, you know, 
support for infrastructure development and so on. All right, sure, yeah. But I mean, but that, yes, but, right, consistent with um, a Democrat administration and um, on all the kind of continuing, all the kind of liberal policies inherited from that period. Um, And so I think, right, that it's the politics of that period has survived um, intact, precisely because the Biden administration was seen as a project of containment and reintegration of all the populist discontent that Trump represented. And that populist discontent, um, whereas that kind of, well, popular discontent, I'd say, um, to be more precise in the UK, um, achieved a break with the political status quo, whereas in every other country, every other major state, um, it's understood to have been deflected or reversed or contained. And I, I don't. I don't disagree with any. I think that just you know taking what the listeners have have said. I think and is that they would. I suspect would say yeah okay, but it's stillborn. I mean in Britain there is no evidence of any positive transformation. It's only yes things are becoming flimsier. So for example, you know um, that is I, the positive transformation. Exactly. I well, think that, I that think is this, the positive no, no, transformation. No, that, think, that definitionally, I, it's negative, and you can see positive. You can see no, it advance in a, a negative. The removal, it, it, the removal of like handcuffs is a positive thing. Yes. Like, and it's you know these are ex- these. But, this but, is but how the prisoner, it's but the prisoner is still standing there in the prison. They, yes, they have no handcuffs, but they're choosing to remain You've in the prison. You've got to start somewhere, you, Alex. Jesus. I, and we're not staying in prison. I'm, I'm we left the prison house of peoples. The European Union is the prison house of peoples. Look, and we well not only got rid of the handcuffs, we stepped outside. This is, now, sounds like the wishes father mean, to, this is the wishing father to the thought. You no, have to recognize. No, just, no. I think people would take you, I would think people would buy the argument if you were able to say, look, yeah, things are shit in Britain. Like they're not, they're not advanced. They have not advanced positively in any substantial regard. So since Brexit, no, can, I, can, since I, Brexit can I, since Brexit, can I make a Brexit point? George, George, yeah, can I make a ahead. point? I've been listening very, very politely. I, I would like to think, but there is, there it is an important transition that we've made in this country from being a member state to a post member state. I don't want to be one of these guys, but I'm just about to do it. Who's like, I wrote this article in, but I did in the Northern star, which took one of the concepts of the book and just, played out a little bit more because i think this is this is a it is a change it is a fundamental shift from that primary mechanism of political evasion being the european union to you know the the next you know running out of mechanisms of evasion i mean this is why i think Eamon's comment is so good because yeah this is heightened by by how much the tories don't want to govern but that is clearer than it would would have been previously under the eu so that is a step forward, you know. If you if you're kind of getting rid of your illusions one by one, that's a good thing. I mean, we're not saying that we're out of illusions and we're you know we're we're there yet, but like as Phil said, you got to start somewhere. Um, and that's that. I, why I think this concept of the post member state is good because it does show that we are <clears throat> we are in a different situation and different mechanisms of political legitimization are required um that is a that is and it's a step forward in that sense so look when i say i just want to be clear about this because i think it is there is a tendency to imagine that if you say you know i'm not saying we've transcended neoliberalism or surpassed it and you know there's plenty of economic um you know the kind of so much of it is locked in it will take literally decades to reverse you know in terms of policy expectations institutional organization design um but i do think britain is politically further ahead on that score than other states and that there was a popular insurrection by and an incursion by the masses into democratic politics 
um, in a way that for you know a confluence of reasons, some of which were entirely arbitrary, um, nonetheless um, made a lasting impression on the political landscape in a way that isn't true um, in other states where you had um, similar or even more kind of um, you know greater public upheaval. Um, and so that is the that is the achievement. So when I say I don't want listeners to think that when I say you know kind of we're further ahead in untangling neoliberalism that it's um, Britain is now kind of a utopia of um, high welfare spending and brilliant infrastructure and um, kind of uh, you know renewed trade unions or anything like that. Far from it, right? Um, but the decay is palpable. Um, and it's much easier to know where to identify the problem because as a result of the withdrawal from the European Union and all the political intensity that came with it, I think the public at large and UK citizens are much more willing to blame our national politicians and to see them as responsible for problems in the UK, of which there are many, just, you know, I don't want to, in case listeners think I'm, you know, naive about that, in a way that they weren't before, and that um, I think citizens in other countries are unwilling or unable to do, because of those countries' integration into the European Union, in Europe at least. And just, um, you know, I do want to just... Um, uh, on the point that Kenneth Smith made about the Chilean constitution, um, I was dismissive about that for more to do with the content than um, the popular kind of mobilization that it might have embodied. I mean, it was the whole idea of a plurinational, um, the plurinational kind of um, thrust, shall we say, of the movement to um, set up a new Ch Chilean constitution. It wasn't about it didn't have the same um, popular kind of momentum towards a renewed popular sovereignty. In quite the opposite, it seemed to me it was diffusing sovereignty, and that it would have, if it had succeeded, it would have, um, you know, carved up popular sovereignty in Chile across this kind of new plurinational idea. Um, and that's quite apart from the, ex, you know, at the fringes about um, rights for animals and all the kind of, um, you know, um, left PMC craziness that unfortunately you get with um, popular movements that are captured um, by the PMC left um, in this era. So I want to be clear about why I was um, cynical or skeptical, at least, about the Chilean, um, the Chilean constitutional debates. Even though there was a tremendous amount of pop, you know, kind of rousing popular energy, and it was um, impressive to witness the degree of um, engagement in that constitutional debate, at least from afar. But nonetheless, it seemed to me, like I say, its overall thrust wasn't to um, reassert popular sovereignty um, in a way that was analogous to what was happening in Brexit, but rather to um, divide it up in a way that would have been much more damaging to popular gains in Chile in future. Okay, so to move on, um, you can, listener, have your say if you want to have more of a say still on on, on Brexit. Um, episode 380 on the Napoleon film, uh, which we call Josephine's Body Count. Um, Steve Bobrick points out that the first Napoleon film, um, I think this is the first Napoleon film ever made, 1927 um, film by Abel Gans, uh, has a much more modern Republican Napoleon, um, unlike the oldness that we criticized in uh, Ridley Scott's film. But Gans is still absolutely obsessed with Josephine, who is rendered as a kind of time-shift flapper sex pot. 
Um, which just goes to show, I suppose, and this is me saying this, that the uh, the manic manic pixie yeah manic pixie dream girl is eternal. The male gaze will never be defeated. Um, actually, that's not true. I mean, I watched Saltburn recently, and that was very much the female gaze because, and and, or, and indeed maybe the gaze gaze um, because because <laughs> you have Barry Keoghan uh, running around naked. You have him. Um, trying to shag the earth um you have his little homoerotic bit with the main character who i remember that tall handsome guy um and you have him barry kyogen eating out a girl on her period too so you know that's very much the female gaze um and it's a terrible film so i guess this just goes to show that uh you can be a pervert but make a good fucking film otherwise I you're just you're a pervert say, and what, that's that no women cool can't be that women can't be film directors alex is that no 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 I, I say it's totally fine it's just that the, the one that sprung to mind that was that i saw most recently which was very much the female gaze sucked but you know both the, the, men and women can be bad film directors this right is i think this is important yeah important. and they both can be perverts um but you know very few can be good film directors and perverts and i would encourage if you can be to be both those things anyway so to move on um there's a nice comment from Jonas Kiratsis, a former guest, friend of the podcast, and, and a video game writer himself. Um, a comment on on writing, actually, which I, I thought was worth um, saying out almost in full. Ridley Scott has precisely zero understanding of story. When he trusts a good script, he can produce great movies. But recently, he's had every movie rewritten to fit his own entirely moronic ideas. And his films have become reliably awful. Napoleon is one of the worst ones yet. Basically, it's the experience of being cornered in a pub by a slightly drunk older man who thinks he's well-read because he watched some conspiracy documentaries on the Discovery Channel. Um, yeah, yeah, that I hits the nail on the head. It I does, mean, it absolutely We didn't does. have to do a whole episode on it. It's like, that's it. That's the, um, the, the George's gist of, of, yeah. this, of that episode. <laughs> we have a section called George's gist. I just have a recurring Yeah, it's where I summarize episodes yeah. in, Good. in um, 10 seconds for the... The listener on the go, the executive summary for executive listeners. Nice. That's a new. Uh, that could be a new. Tier. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we should do that one. But. So, um, art with uh, the episode we did on art um, called uh, "Spectacle and Pompous Discourse," uh, which we did with George J. J. Charlesworth. There's a nice point from Conrad on those two uh, titular themes, both spectacle on the one hand and pompous discourse on the other. So, I mean, basically, um, if you haven't listened to that episode, or to remind you, uh, spectacle refers to the shallow, superficial art, particularly of the 2000s, 90s, 2000s, uh, that relies a lot on wow. Um, but which is, you know, has no real meaning behind it. And on the other hand, uh, cheap, condescending political art on the other, which to, wants to tell you about how you're um, killing the planet or, you know, um, enslaving people or whatever it might be. Um, so Conrad's comment, quote, I sometimes wonder whether the spectacle and the pompous discourse aren't alibis for each other, the former providing a, the aura of artness that the latter lacks, and the latter providing the aura of substance that the former lacks. But a problem that haunts contemporary art is that the shift from a concern with a question of what the work is and means, which presumes a single contestable answer, to a core question of what it makes one feel, with neither singular answer nor the possibility of a wrong one, undermines whatever quote-unquote political aspirations it has. If the work is believed to have no innate fixed meaning, there are no grounds from which to make its claims. It seems to me that the effect that affect theory tried and failed to bridge this gap. 
The spectacle side of it similarly hamstrung by this shift, which is why so much contemporary art seems to fail on its own terms. Neither the spectacle nor the politics are engaging. I thought that was well put and, and well observed. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I think it was a good, a good episode and yeah. that, that kind of point about the that that JJ brought out a little bit as well. The interrelation of these two um, kind of related deficiencies in contemporary art. Um, yeah, it was, was well made yeah. as well by him. I, I also think that, you know, we, we talk a lot about kind of evasion, evasion of responsibility and so on. And I think part of, you know, cynical ideology insofar as it's a sort of defense mechanism, um, you know, preemptive defense is that if you never make clear claims, simple claims, which can be contested, you can't be held to account for them. And to a certain extent, art, I think a lot of contemporary art is evasive in that regard in which, in which it says a lot of things about itself, a lot of blather. Um, but not suggestive of a meaning. Now, I'm not saying that art needs to shout, mm. this is what this art means. Um, but I think that there is a, a certain evasion in being kind of constantly multiple, and then you can be anything. And, and also uh, leaning on emotion rather than kind of some more um, intellectual uh, understanding. Allusive, elusive, Indeed. polysemic. Mm. Yeah, it's all very postmodern. Nice. Cheers. Um, Right. So um, moving on into the into the last couple of episodes, we're going to discuss comments on uh, there are ones from this year, I believe, also um, on uh, episode three two on the millennial left with Chris Cutrone. Um, not actually that many comments on this. Many appreciated it, but uh, also people saying they would have liked more of a clash, um, more more a battle of ideas. Um, and you're in comments. I agree with everything, but what does Cutrone think would happen if the contemporary left, which he admits is almost completely made up of middle-class college kids and so on, adopted the quote-unquote correct positions? If it's nothing, which is a position I hold, then what's the point of any of this? So what's the point of ideological critique of the left to say, hate left, have the right ideas, if if empirically it's people who don't matter in some? No, it's a good question. Um, I mean, it's one for Chris Catrone, ultimately, not for us. Um, but I mean, I think it's, um, you know, the platypus, you know, and as much as platypus, the um, uh, the group that um, Chris Catrone helped set up um, and found, in as much as it succeeds, it's kind of subtracted um, a generation of um, intelligent middle-class college kids from being um, wrapped up in the democratic kind of party circus and machine and then being spat out once they're you know no longer of use to um, providing kind of radical cover for whatever the you know Democrats want to do and so you know that's um you know that's an, that's an achieve that's some you know that's an achievement um but um does it go is there anything beyond that I suppose politically um speaking that's of um that's of value. But again, you know, that's, I suppose, a question for um, for Catrone rather than for us. I mean, I guess the logic would be that you know that the left is unable to appeal to a wider body of people and to the working class with its contemporary ideas. And if it had different ideas, they might have more appeal. I mean, that would be the argument. Yeah, I think yeah but that, everyone I knows that, of, right? But the question is, what ideas? Well, this is the point, right? I think a bit of vulgar Marxism very vulgar marxism helps like left can't have the correct ideas because ideas are a consequence of class position and they have a different and opposed class position to working class so you know if you want to boil it down to the i don't know what you boil the the salt in the salt water or whatever maybe that's it yeah and i mean furthermore it's um 
you know, politics is ultimately about more than intellectual acuity or um, intellectual correctness of a particular theory or model. And so it's... I mean, it's mostly not about that. You know, it's, it's almost, it's, it's rarely about that. We strive to make it about that, but it isn't. Most I don't know time. that we strive to make it about that. I mean, you know, I think the, I think it is, it's... Um, what I mean is, I suppose, you know, I think it, you can identify, um, I think, the meaning and purpose behind particular decisions, even if the decisions are made kind of, you know, desperately or out of stupidity or irrationality or, um, you know, what have you. So I think to that extent, it's possible to identify kind of an intellectually, it's possible to provide an intellectually consistent account of any particular decision or outcome. Um, but what I mean is, I suppose, um, simply drawing attention to the inadequacy of particular um, prescriptions doesn't address the fact that um, they are necessarily the products of a period in which has a particular kind of, um, you know, political configuration and sociological configuration. Um, so in the sense that, you know, we're in the period in which we have um, no meaningful kind of organized working class movements or working class politics, um, that it is, that is the kind of um, politics that comes out of that. So, but anyway, I mean, we can't, you know, we can't answer on um, Catrone's behalf and this is really a question for him. So, so um, to move on to, to, uh, well, moving through this, um, Episode 383, where we had uh, Giuliano Fiori on, uh, stare into the abyss with us. Blake, with a with a kind of a, a slightly elusive comment here, starting to think that Spengler was right, and the dialectic between technocracy and populism will just be resolved by a new kind of dictatorship. Intriguing. I don't know if you have any comment on that, guys. Maybe we should have, have to do an episode on Spengler? I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know Spengler well enough um, to answer that question. But I, I mean, I do, I am kind of, you know, have discussed the idea of a kind of, you know, a certain Caesarism or something. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's, um, know, I mean, we might, we might already be seeing it, right? Um, if not I mean, exactly kind of outright dictatorship, at least um, authoritarian, kind of authoritarian um, and charismatic forms of, um, of leadership. And also, well, but me, also at the level of the state, I think it's not just the kind of charismatic leader, but also the way in which state power is understood and used seems to me to be seeking to kind of bridge that, um, mm. to bridge that gap between. I guess well, you have, you have to to kind of foreshadow. Well, I'm going to do foreshadowing, but I think for listeners, they, this episode will already have come out. But but um, our episode, which will be out on on Tuesday, the uh, or sometime in early February, um, shortly after El Salvador's election, uh, on Nayib Bukele, the president there, who's like this you know, Bitcoin millennial guy who thinks he's really clever, but also has locked up huge swathes of the country um, in this kind of authoritarian move um, to to provide peace and, and supposedly, um, you know, defeat the drug gangs, though he's probably done a little deal with them. So, um, you know, that's a that would be a, mm. an, an exemplar, albeit from a small peripheral country of, of, of um, some kind of, yeah, kind of dictatorial seeming resolution to kind of populism mm. versus technocracy. Well, you know, to, I guess two two quick comments on this. Firstly, I'm assuming that Blake's comment refers to Oswald Spengler, not Egon Spengler, who I believe is in Ghostbusters, but not sure. Secondly, on the Caesarism point, this is kind of this is a term Gramsci uses um, to refer kind of quite obliquely to Mussolini. 
And there's a he comes up with this interesting idea of, of Caesarless Caesarism, which maybe warrants a bit more thought, which is this idea mm. that you because obviously like the, the Caesarist like paradigm, the Bonapartist, it's kind of like basically that's just like that's fascism. Like you have somebody who stands above the political kind of disputes and you know, that's the dictator. But if it's a Caesarless Caesarism, that's a little bit more interesting potentially because it's not boiling all down saying like this person's a fascist that person's a fascist but saying is there a move which is di- different to technocracy which looks to stand above the kind of political kind of conflict that we have is this a kind of environmentalism which is the caesarless caesarism of you know 21st century that might be a bit of an yeah, I'm thinking of just coming up with this off the top of my head, so it might no, be a bit cryptic worth, or not make sense. It's worth exploring that it's not, you know, a per, like per, a personal or so personalized necessarily, but it's a kind of a, a process yeah, maybe which supplants. Because it's a bit like I think you know reducing everything to fascism is not very productive today. Um, so yeah, maybe. But we, but we can also discuss Caesar. We can also discuss Caesarism or Bonapartism without fascism. I mean, <laughs> indeed, you know, both Caesar and Bonaparte rather predate. Well, they fascism, are. I mean, yeah, they're precisely not forms of fascism. I mean, it's, I suppose, if you, I don't know, you know, I haven't come across the, or if I had, I'd forgotten it, the Caesarless Caesarism um, as a, a Gramscian idea. But it, I mean, it seems to me it would be something like a, um, what it suggests to me at least is um, kind of an authoritarian state structure, um, which has some kind of um, popular you know, um, legitimacy as its um, basis, but that doesn't have a, a center which is focused on a charismatic individual. So you would have its kind of authoritarian technocracy with some kind of popular legitimation for it. Um, I mean, again, you know, uh, that would, I mean, lockdown would seem to me to um, yeah. kind of offer a model for that. Yeah. In the sense, not necessarily in terms of the prescriptions, but at least here you have kind of a sweeping exercise of emergency power by the state, um, which is led by kind of technocratic or authorized and overseen by technocratic commissions at both the supranational level and at the national level. But it's not associated with kind of, you know, men in uniforms and big boots kind of strutting around and telling everyone what to do at the core of it. There is no kind of charismatic personality holding it all together. Um Quite the opposite, you know. In Britain, Boris Johnson deferred to um, deferred to um, the scientific advisory group. So it's, um, I mean, that would seem to me to be something like that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a point well made. I'll actually have to go back and <laughs> try and find where where Gramsci actually uses this term, and to make sure that I haven't actually just got that completely wrong. <laughs> um... One last comment here, um, just a point, because in that episode, um, Phil made the point that um, just in terms of the gloominess of the times, that after the global financial crisis, after you know populism and, and then the lockdowns and whatever, you have a further kind of nail in the coffin of any kind of popular expectations or hope, which is inflation. But Andrea makes an interesting kind of, kind of correction, I suppose, or, or observation about their experience in Italy, which is that... Um, in Italy, there was no sense of a hope for a maintenance of social standards and personal or family financial security um, at the beginning of the euro crisis in 2012. If anything, um, how the inflation crisis of the last two years has been lived in Italy has been as a continuation of a downward trend in life expectancies or life expectations that you have from life. Um, I'm actually quite surprised how normal the current crisis actually appears in Italy. 
Also, cheap money was never a thing that actually impacted most people in Italy, contrary to Spain or Greece in the pre-Euro crisis years. So um, moving on to uh, the last pair of episodes we're going to discuss, the, the two with uh, with Amber. Um, firstly, the one on, on Dirtbag, um, on her book. There's lots of appreciation for Amber, Amber's critique of left ne- necrophilia, which is to say, um, to remind you, only liking dead old, the, the dead old romantic working class or a working class which is on its knees and in, in need of care. Um, John O'Rourdon um, quotes Michael Collins, I was much fonder of the old people in the darkness than I was of the young people in the daytime. Um, Michael Collins, a man who actually did some politics, says John Rorden. Um, also, uh, Nimporteki says, I think Lenin was already onto the necrophilia um, idea in State and Revolution on the first page. He quotes, um, lots of Lenin today, which is um, as it should be. The oppressing classes have constantly persecuted the great revolutionaries in their lifetime, reacted to their teachings with the most savage malice, the wildest hatred, and the most shameless campaigns of lies and slander. Attempts are made after their death to convert them into harmless icons, to canonize them, so to speak, and to confer a certain prestige on their names so as to console the oppressed classes by emasculating the essence of the revolutionary teaching, blunting its revolutionary edge and vulgarizing it. Um, Wow. Sorry, just to jump in, I made the point about Lenin's embalmed corpse earlier, and that's like... (laughs) You know the the irony of uh, exactly what happened to him. Yeah, um, and all the statues for pigeons to shit on as well. So it's just unfortunate what happens to you when you die. You don't have much control over things. Yeah. Um, so uh, Plechazunga. Well, firstly, Plechazunga asked, "Did DSA have the horses?" Um, because Amber refers to this at several points. You know, do you have the horses? Do you have the do you have the manpower? Do you have the um, you know do you have the force to be able to win power? Um, and one listener, Eric L., comments that um, I'm not Amber, but I was deeply involved in DSA from early 2018 to late 2021. And for whatever it's worth, I can very confidently tell you, no, we didn't. The potential was there that we could have raised the horses, but the opportunity was squandered. But that's just me. Um, Jonas Kiratsis, kind of preempting um, an answer to that question, says, what suggests that there was anything even remotely real about Sanders or Corbyn? What is there to make us discard a sober Marxist analysis of how social Democrats have always acted? If it happens to every movement with those politics, could it be more than just a feat? Why is the left so gullible? It's a fair point by Jonas. I mean, I wasn't, um, for the benefit of listeners who didn't, um, who haven't listened to the Amber episode 384, um, I wasn't on this episode, but um, it seems, you know, I think Jonas makes a, a good, a useful point. Um, the Corbyn the Corbyn thing especially, but I suspect um, the Sanders thing as well. Um, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't really a meaningful thing. It was in the sense that it um, was about reviving kind of a, even a traditional, I mean, maybe this is the answer to Jonas as well, that it was about reviving a traditional social democratic politics. I mean, the classical critique of social democracy was, you know, that it kind of, um, it has a working class base, but it leads the working class astray. Whereas, um, you know, Sanders and Corbyn, though they did have, you know, they did have working class voters and support um, politically, you know, it was, and um, we've said this and many other people have said it, it was politically in terms of its activist, its core base, its momentum, its thrust, shall we say. Um, it was Ew. very much a middle class phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think that the... The, the the point is that it's not social democracy 
um, and the treason of social democracy again. In a way, it's worse than that, right? In a way, it's worse than that because it's actually populism, right? It's a populist solution there to the more, problems There of are the more left. horses involved. Well, more different types of horses rather than the one singular working class horse. Um, but anyway, um, let's not Boxer go down any equine, too many equine metaphors. But um, the idea there is that you're going to cobble together this coalition from different parts of society um, as the people against the elite. Um, and that is flimsy. Um, and there's certainly irreconcilable things, you know, as in Britain, which they found out. It didn't even out. go that far, though. I mean, this is a point, you know, that we made, um, that George and I and our co-authors made in our book, Taking Control. You know, they didn't even go that far. Um, the Corbyn slogan was the many, you know, for the many, not the few. Um, and it kind of, even in that slogan, it seems there was a concession That's to... Even vaguer, yeah. Yeah, well, a concession to kind of intersectionalist kind of fragmentation and unwillingness to posit a kind of um, a democratic or a popular unity or some kind of um, coherence, you know. So- no, th- I think that's I think that's fair. Um, and indeed, one critique one could make of of the left populists is that they were maybe not populist enough and not being true enough to to the kind of populist formulation. If you're going to go down that road, but to to be a, a bit more kind of positive is that we're so beyond the problematics of social democracy or reform versus revolution today that I'm not sure how helpful it is to even think about it in those terms. To a certain extent, we have to play ball where we are um, on the on, on this field, which is kind of in many ways way less promising than and without the potentialities that you faced in the 20th century. So no, I think it, that's it's, right. it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky to just be like, aha, the social democrats. That's not so much the issue. I think the point is about rebuilding politics. And were these movements able to rebuild politics in some way? There was a glimmer of possibility, and which is why I think I was somewhat enthusiastic about them because it was people getting together, and you know, in terms of Sanders actually garnering a quite a lot of um, working class support. But again, that would have meant building new institutions, building a new party, for instance, and yeah, that's what that's flashes. where the big failure was. Yeah, there were flashes of it. I remember, um, you know, Sanders had an interview. I can't was it with the rapper? Maybe I can't remember. Um, but somebody anyway, may, somebody Mike. asked him like, sorry. No, it wasn't. It wasn't with Killer Mike. It was somebody else. Maybe anyway, whatever. Um, somebody asked him something like, um, "Will you serve as, um, you know, as um, as a deputy? Um, vi- you know, will you serve as vice president or as um, secretary of state in Hillary Clinton's administration?" And he said, "You should ask her whether she will serve as my." vice president or as a secretary of state in my administration. And there was a flat, you know, there was a flash of steel there, mm. which I remember at the time I was, um, you know, I was quite surprised by and admiring of, but I mean, you know, at the end of the day, everyone knew when the democratic convention came round, he was, um, you know, he was going to surrender and everybody knew that's what it was ultimately about. Um, well, and, and similarly and, with Corbyn, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was kind of impressed when he won in 2015 in the Labour Party election, in the internal election to the Labour Party. And I was hopeful also because by that, you know, when we knew that a referendum was going to be called on EU membership the following year, it's, you know, I was hopeful that you had an old fashioned Eurosceptic as head of the Labour Party. It seemed to me that was positive because it would help consolidate a popular base for Euroscepticism in the country at large. Um, but even there, you know, my hopes were dashed that I overestimated um, Corbyn on that one. Just to uh, reassure our listeners that I'm not kind of um, perpetually, perpetually um, skeptical and correct, but occasionally um, hopeful, hopeful and wrong. Mm. It could be, be hopeful and That's right, a, though, wouldn't it? 
It'll be yeah. nice. It'll be nice, but it didn't happen. That's a that's a bit of like, oh, this is the one time I was ever wrong, which means every other time I'm fine. I'm correct. No, I mean one one thing which we which we didn't talk about, which I should have um I should have asked Amber about was the I don't know if you remember the 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 Bernie um campaign video, the America one with like the Simon and Garfunkel backing track. That was that's really fucking good. That still is good. Um and so there were some times where you you know, where it thought well, I thought, ah, there is a, and you know, the example you gave as well, Phil, there's, there is something which, you know, does, is quite arresting and different. Um, when, but I mean, when it was true you know, to its, when it's true to its populist pretenses, I think it was, was better able to kind of realize or came closer to realizing what it promised and what it promised was not revolution. I mean, I think this is, it, it's important to also say insofar as, you know, you might set up um, them as being kind of, um, you know, social democratic sellouts. It's like there was no pretense of revolution here. And so this, it, this, the the example that I gave is yeah, it, it's America. Like it's the nation. It's the, it's something is it isn't revolution in the old sense at all. As you, as you were saying, Alex, it's something more. And is is that social democracy? It's it's, yeah, it's it's kind of not exactly. And that's why it it, it seemed like it was something different I, at the time. It's really important, you know, because. Um, social democracy prior to the second world war you know saw itself as a revolutionary marxist um you know that was its claim um that it was seeking to overthrow capitalism substitute socialism on grand you know in circumstances and on a time frame that was different to that of their communist um competitors in the 20s and 30s but nonetheless i mean you know they were um, they saw themselves at least as serious marxists who wanted to replace socialism with capitalism. And, um, you know, that's, I mean, you know, that's distant from, I mean, our, you know, Corbyn and Sanders are different from post-war social Democrats of the, um, you know, Willy Brandt and, um, I don't know, Willy Brandt and Mitterrand kind of um, form, let alone, you know, let alone kind of the social Democrats of the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, So just on uh, vibe shift, Global Elite Vibe Shift, where we discuss the World Economic Forum and, and, and some other things. Some interesting comments here. Um, so firstly, uh, Pletcha Zunga says, um, whatever substantive content wokeness or various populist formations might have, um, there might be a recognition that they're also basically mimetic phenomena. The hysterical swarm-like mobs of the 2010s had less to do with the messages people were tapping into and more with the media through which they were receiving those messages. That is to say, the medium is the message, I guess. Um, so the, the there was also in all of this um, a sort of, both in wokeness and its kind of right-wing kind of uh, opposition to it, and its own forms of kind of, um, you know, populism, to, to put it that way, you know, kind of some break with, with elite thought, whatever. Um, there's a premise of a whispered promise of some esoteric suppressed knowledge that is finally being uncovered, whether that's neglected queer or colonial histories, CIA parapolitics, semi-agnostic articulations of Marxism, seed oils, elite propag- uh, pedophilia rings, etc. As this esoterica has gone mainstream, been repurposed as content, as the system, in other words, um, the system has uh, seemingly absorbed this stuff without issue. The revolutionary promise of secret knowledge is evaporating. I think that's really intriguing. Um, and I think it may be worth, worth kind of dwelling on. I, you know, I've kind of, I've, I've thought a lot of kind of about how the 
culture wars have become um, kind of solidified into actually a, a, a form of a form of control, not to put it too conspiratorially, um, how that's um, become a way of channeling engagement or channeling all kind of anger at, at the situation into just engagement and futile sort of engagement um, into these very sterile culture wars, um, which are kind of driven by, you know, markers of, of identity and belonging of being this type of person versus that type of person, um, which creates the impossibility of any kind of solidarity or kind of democratic um, politics. So I think that that's, but there's an intellectual angle to this, which, which the um, listener points to, I think, which is interesting as well, that a lot of these, that a lot of the culture war, um, yeah, presupposes a kind of, aha, but I really know what's going on. There's something, you know, behind this actually, um, which, um, which itself has been, been absorbed. And I think that it kind of speaks a little bit also to the complete hollowing out intellectually of liberalism where it's able to kind of absorb very and 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 play its own conspiracy theories important to say as well um and in throughout this period so there is a yeah. kind of neutralizing effect that happens I'm, i mean yeah i think it's a point that stuck with me from from that discussion on timothy melly's um book on conspiracies that 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 is the the shift from that like here is this secret small group who are orchestrating the the conspiracy to the more modern conspiracy which is like it's it's done out in the open and everyone's everyone's implicated um and so that's where the the kind of the the paranoia comes from not not that there's something that you don't know about but that in fact everybody um is involved i was obviously a lot more complicated than that but i do i think it's an interesting way to look at changing conspiracy theories well i mean um you know, it's a good thing you, listener, subscriber, are a subscriber to BungaCast, so you are privy to the secret knowledge about the world, and you get it here first. So thank you for being with us. Let us share in this knowledge and be content that we know how the world truly works and who really controls it. All right, guys, thank you very much for listening. Thank you again for engaging with everything we do, for the comments, uh, and uh, and for their criticisms too. So we look forward to doing um, another one of these soon very soon um and we'll be back with you with our regular programming as well uh next week so catch you later bye bye